Hello and welcome to the Age of Victoria podcast. My name's Chris Fernandez Packham. Let's get on with the show. I hope everyone is enjoying the start of autumn. Naturally, my health broke down again in September, so you've had to wait longer than expected for this episode. I'm almost at the stage of offering ritualistic apologies for the delays. As some of you might have noticed, I have updated the podcast artwork after the patrons voted. Hopefully, this will make the show easier to find on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It feels rather tasteful and reminds me of Pharaoh and Ball paints, which I'm going to use when I buy my Victorian dream house. Speaking of painting and redecorating, today we are going to look at the reform at Buckingham Palace and Prince Albert's inner interior designer. Albert certainly had taste and style. It was of a fixed and somewhat formal style, rather Marmite-ish, but he certainly had it. Buckingham Palace is one of the most recognisable buildings in the world. It has had the benefit of being part of an imperial capital. It has also had the benefit of the late Queen Elizabeth II's very clever media branding. She carefully cultivated the image of the fun-loving but dignified grandmother of the nation as she grew older. Everything from having James Bond visit, to Paddington Bear, to Brian May playing an epic guitar solo on the palace roof. Behind the branding, though, is a huge building, one that was intimately associated with Queen Victoria and Prince Albert. When it was first built, it was actually Buckingham House, on the site of a previous country house. The Duke of Buckingham rented the old house, hated it, and demolished it to make way for his new creation. I know tenants normally can't knock down a house they don't like, but being a duke meant he had a lot of social power, and he was paying an annual rent that was about $25 in modern purchasing power terms. So, next time your landlord is giving you grief, the simple solution is to become a multi-millionaire duke who is good friends with the king. Honestly, if you can't even be bothered to do that, it's your own fault, really. Buckingham House was eventually snapped up by King George III and given to Queen Charlotte to use. It was then known as the Queen's House. I know, they put a lot of overtime into coming up with that one. They extensively remodelled it and refurbished it, but it remained a house. Luckily for us, Buckingham House was acquired by all-time podcast favourite phantomime villain, King George IV. As you know from the episodes on him, he was an awful, awful person, but he was very committed to spending ridiculous sums of public money on art and buildings. That might be bad for the government, but it does lead to lasting historical legacies at least. You can't make an omelette without breaking a few eggs, and you can't build magnificent royal buildings without nearly bankrupting the country and coming close to a revolution. The reason we no longer have nice buildings is that we now put accountants in charge of everything, which is why the modern UK mostly looks like a concrete shoebox with glass windows. At least George IV left us some beautiful exterior design works. Naturally, he was not going to live in a mere house. Even if it was a fine example of Georgian aristocratic taste with beautiful Renaissance-style interiors. Kings lived in castles and palaces. He had a castle or three already, but he really needed a proper modern palace, since St James's Palace and Kensington Palace didn't really count. So Buckingham House had to become Buckingham Palace. I can barely describe the amount of money that was spent. Superstar architect John Nash was put in charge and eventually fired for a ridiculous overspend of nearly HS2 proportions. It was all worth it. The completed palace was a glorious tour de force in Renaissance decor with elements of Rocco, Baroque and even Gothic inside a U-shaped building that was designed in the neoclassical style 
Marble Arch was located in the courtyard, although it would be later moved to Hyde Park Corner. Europeans can be quite snobbish over British architecture, but Buckingham Palace was absolutely on a par with the best Europe had to offer. The style was different, but when Victoria became Queen in 1837, she made it the official royal residence. That made it the palace at the heart of the greatest empire on earth, and over her lifetime, it would become dripping with wealth. It was also very firmly the product of a monarchy that was constitutionally under the control of Parliament, not the absolutism of the French monarchy when building Versailles. It meant it had to sit in London, and so had some serious space constraints when it came to the grounds. Like anyone moving into a new house, Victoria soon noticed a few problems. Her predecessor, George IV, had never finished the work on the palace, and William IV had preferred to live in Clarence House. Her tough upbringing at Kensington meant she was willing to overlook a few flaws. After all, she had her own palace now. Albert, when he turned his disciplined German mind to studying the palace as a project, went ballistic. Unlike a lot of rich aristocrats, Albert was intelligent, incredibly disciplined, hard-working, fastidious with money, and so honest it was almost painful. When the crazed building practices and utterly shambolic staffing arrangements came under his eagle eye, he was almost ready to go to war. I don't believe in national stereotyping, but some national cultures do produce common behavioural outlooks. Elbert was clearly Germanic and was intellectually ruthless combined with a cold need for efficiency. Elbert had expected a palace fit for the queen of an empire. What he found was essentially an unsanitary dump that was run like the proverbial piss-up in a brewery with fraud and waste running rampant. Built over the River Tyburn, with leaks, sewage problems, gas leaks in the kitchens that sometimes caused explosions, and hygiene standards that were a lethal health hazard, there was no way that Albert Almighty was going to put up with it. He quickly identified one key problem. Baroness Lazen had been Victoria's governess as a child, and probably saved her from disaster at the hands of her mother and leech-in-chief Sir John Conroy. To Victoria, Baroness Lazen was a dear friend who now supported her almost as personal secretary. To Albert, she was a real problem. The Baroness did everything she could to get between Albert and Victoria. Plus, she was inept at running a palace and probably could at best be charitably said to be not very good with the finances. I'm sure other less flattering descriptions were used behind her back. Luckily for Albert, the palace was broken into repeatedly by someone named The Boy Jones. The boy enjoyed stealing clothes, food and causing general mayhem. Palace security was lax, the guards were often drunk and homeless people slept in the grounds. Victoria was still young and going through her party phase so she was happy to treat the place like a lot of youngsters treat their first flat. Unlike Albert and her later image, Victoria could be surprisingly unjudgmental when it came to personal morality, especially when she liked the person. Elbert was many things, but relaxed and easygoing he was not. To the painful horror of a huge number of people, Elbert was going to hold investigations, reviews, reform, and even, God forbid, run an honest financial institution. You can hear generations of aristocrats rotating in their graves at the thought. First on Albert's list was Victoria herself. He might love her and want to be a devoted husband, but he wasn't going to have her going to bed at three in the morning after parties and generally living the lifestyle of the good time kings of old. She would be following a schedule. Mornings meant breakfast at 0900 hours, then a healthy walk then writing, drawing and art until 1400 hours. Then 
The afternoon was to be spent with the Prime Minister, Lord Melbourne, on official business. This was to be followed by a short carriage ride, then dinner at 20 hundred hours. It was rather controlling, but Albert knew that Victoria had to realise being Queen was a full-time job of international importance. He was painfully aware from his upbringing that the monarchies of Europe were far more vulnerable and ready to topple than people assumed. The British monarchy was no exception. Albert had been through a thorough education, including excellent, if truncated, university studies. He had thought deeply about the nature of politics and political rule. He passionately believed he was born to serve, and he felt that was exactly what a modern monarchy did. It served the nation with unstinting effort and would ideally provide a form of constitutional despotism in line with Enlightenment principles. It was not a mass democratic idea, but it did recognise that absolute rule by an absolute monarch was not possible. Monarchs had to act in accordance with the rule of law and respect the process of democratic government. Albert knew if Victoria kept drinking and dancing the night away, she would soon be seen as yet another worthless, drunken monarch like her Georgian ancestors, and the British monarchy might be swept up in revolution just as the continental ones seemed destined to be. This was very unfair. Victoria did care deeply for her work, her duty, and was committed to being queen. She just hadn't thought as far ahead as Albert, since she was still too willing to rely on Baroness Lazen and Lord Melbourne for guidance. By the time Victoria was in her second pregnancy, Lord Melbourne was being replaced by Sir Robert Peel. He had actually briefly been Prime Minister for 120 days in 1834 into 1835. He was then replaced by Lord Melbourne, who guided Victoria through her accession to the throne. Victoria initially hated Peel. He was a Tory and his shyness around her made him come across as cold while she veered towards Tetchy. But as her pregnancy progressed, it was clear that Albert had to step in to take over larger amounts of work, which would include a change in Prime Ministers. The previous attempt for Peel to become Prime Minister instead of the Whig Lord Melbourne had been in 1839. Victoria had effectively blocked this during the political crisis and became known as the Affair of the Bedchamber. She had refused to have her Whig ladies-in-waiting replaced with Tory ladies-in-waiting. Peel had correctly seen this as a partisan move from Victoria and felt that without a signal of royal acceptance, he couldn't form a Tory government. In the short term, Victoria had won, but it was a huge political mistake. It had directly involved the Crown in party politics, done an end run around the admittedly limited, electorate, and exposed Victoria to the kind of criticism received by presidents, prime ministers, and direct rulers. The British monarchy could not survive on this basis, especially in the disaster-filled 1840s. Albert was not prepared to tolerate a repeat. The Crown would expect to be consulted to advise to work with governments, but it would not be openly politically partisan. The politically astute Albert had already recognised the impending collapse of Lord Melbourne's government and the inevitability of Sir Robert Peel becoming Prime Minister. Albert was also careful to work with the declining Lord Melbourne, but he was looking to the future. He entered secret negotiations with Peel to facilitate the transition it was agreed that three of the ladies-in-waiting would resign and the Queen would then notify Peel that the positions were vacant for Tories. It was a neat solution. Victoria would keep three Whig ladies and signal her acceptance of a Tory administration without looking like she had given in to Peel or been forced to capitulate to any automations. Peel was delighted and wrote to the Queen outlining Albert's intellectual superiority. 
According to Serving Victoria, Life in the Royal Household, quote, In July, the Tories swept into power. Peel showed perfect tact, and the Queen showed herself perfectly amenable, agreeing to the resignation of the Duchess of Sutherland, Lady Normandy, and the Duchess of Bedford, though the departure of the latter brought a temporary reversal. Private Secretary Anson recorded the Queen said the Tories would say if she submitted to this that she had been vanquished and lowered before the world. The Prince said, I fear the lady's gossip is again setting about you. The Queen on that burst into tears, which could not be stopped for some time. End quote. Anson himself was a good example of the convoluted state of the royal administration. He was George Edward Anson and is normally referred to as Prince Albert's personal secretary. In fact, to make his position work, he was, to quote his obituary, quote, Keeper of Her Majesty's Privy Purse, Treasurer of the Household to His Royal Highness Prince Albert, Treasurer and Cofferer of the Household of His Royal Highness the Prince of Wales, a member of the Duchy of Lancaster, and of the Prince of Wales Council for the Duchy of Cornwall, Axe Keeper and Master of Game in Needwood Forest, end quote. A stressed, depressed and rather angry Victoria was left feeling that she'd been shut out of things. She was upset that Albert had just gone ahead and made a significant change without her knowledge, using her pregnancy as an opportunity. It was a pretty poor, misogynistic way to treat a woman who had had to fight her way to the throne in the first place and then had had to fight again to be taken seriously. On the other hand, she knew deep down Albert was not only right, but that the UK desperately needed his political gifts. His end run behind her back had achieved a solution to a problem that she couldn't resolve. When Lord Melbourne left office, it would be easy to assume that the UK of the time was a rich imperial power. It had colonies growing in Australia, New Zealand, South Africa and Canada. It was seeing the rollout of the railways and mass industrialisation. It was starting the slow absorption or outright conquest of India. It was still reaping the benefits of its previous involvement with the slave trade. This was only half the picture. Across Europe, the memories of the French Revolution and Napoleon meant the whole political situation was permanently unsettled. The UK was struggling badly in Afghanistan. There was expensive conflict in China. The Ottoman affair rumbled on, with the unstable Europe seemingly close to a giant war. Domestically, Lord Melbourne had been a lazy Prime Minister. According to historian A.N. Wilson, the UK at the time had an enormous budget deficit of £2.5 million and an overall debt of over £7.5 million. Rapid population growth of 15% that was causing mass unplanned urban growth and the political system was deeply dysfunctional. The royal account were not much better, with up to one third of the income of the Duchy of Cornwall going to waste. And if you adjust those figures into modern money, the debts were staggering. The treasury was dependent on import tariffs, taxes from the wealthy were negligible, and the powerful land-owning class relied on import tariffs on bread, wheat and corn to keep corn prices artificially high to ensure they made profits off their vast agricultural portfolios. This caused a cost of living crisis as rents and basic food prices skyrocketed whilst wages stagnated. Social unrest followed and memories of the French Revolution rightly stirred. Albert and Peel quickly formed a friendly and respectful working relationship. Albert had arranged for Peel's portrait to be painted and they had happily discussed German mythic poetry and music. Peel agreed to give Albert a real role, heading the Royal Commission 
to choose artworks and interior decor for the newly rebuilt Houses of Parliament. Albert used Peel as an expert guide to the ramshackle traditions that made up British society and politics. The UK was never lucky enough to have a revolution during the Age of Revolutions and therefore missed the chance to have a modern functional constitution like France or the United States, a mistake we remain paying dearly for. It relied on a patchwork of documents and doing things the way old men in institutions assumed they had always been done. The royal family didn't have a formally designated place of government, which is odd for a head of state, despite having the official residence. Instead, the work followed the monarch in person, much as it had done in the Middle Ages. This meant that eventually Victoria and Albert would split their time between Buckingham Palace, Windsor Castle, Balmoral and Osborne House. Senior politicians had to travel to wherever the royal couple were putting their feet up at the time. Albert found the English rather tasteless in art and design, so was eager to stretch his creative wings. He would eventually be involved in many grand art and design projects. He loved the cutting edge in art, much as he did in music. As Anson's many titles showed, the various royal family members each had their own mini-households, and the complexity of administration was sometimes baffling. Anson was a huge boon to the royal couple, but arguments grew over Lazen. She began to openly contest Albert's activities, and Anson thought she was deliberately undermining Albert when she talked to Victoria. She set off the worst of Albert's snobbery and irritated his very formal views on social etiquette. This dislike of Lazen was not universal. Many who met her thought her clever, practical and rather motherly. It appears that Albert simply couldn't tolerate a rival and Lazen couldn't recognise her close relationship with the Queen from childhood had to change to accommodate the marriage. Things boiled over after the birth of the second child. On the 9th of November 1841, the Queen gave birth to her second child, Prince Edward. The royal duty was done. A male heir had been provided, and Albert supported Victoria during her postnatal depression. They stayed at Windsor Castle to help Victoria recover, but were summoned back to London because they got news that their daughter was gravely ill. They raced back to Claremont House to find the little princess was thin and pale. The ever-incompetent Dr. Clark, who we've met in previous episodes, gave the sick child chicken broth mixed with cream, followed by a good dose of mercury-laced calomel. And to really attempt to push up the already sky-high death rates among the under-fives, he added a good whack of laudanum on top. Albert was furious and rebuked the nurse in charge of the nursery, who unwisely argued back. Victoria took her side, and that started a very public argument, a thing Albert loathed above all else. Albert told Victoria that she was too attached to Lazen, blind to her faults, and that Lazen, the doctor, and Victoria were risking the child's life. Victoria, whose temper tended towards the absurdly volcanic, blasted back that Albert was over-controlling, jealous, and trying to take over everything whilst being blind to all the good that Lazen had done. To outside observers, it is clear that they had very different styles of arguing. Victoria had an extremely quick temper and immense outbursts, sometimes linked to her depression. Some of the doctors worried that her temper was so extreme that it was potentially evidence that she had inherited her grandfather George III's mental illness. Balanced against this, she quickly went back to being calm and rarely carried on being angry for long. She expected others to just move on already. After all, she had, even if it was only two minutes ago. Couldn't people just get over it already? It didn't really hit her that not everyone 
ignored things that she said in the heat of anger. Albert, on the other hand, was very slow to get angry, but when he did, he was cold and withdrawn, and boy did he carry a grudge. He usually withdrew from arguments. He disliked passionate emotions, especially anger. Many biographers have speculated that the traumatic banishment of his mother by his enraged father at a young age left him with a lifelong problem with dealing with other people's rage. Combined with his natural stiffness and his controlling nature, he was a difficult man when crossed. As Victoria raged at him in the nursery, Albert simply turned his back and walked out. He left Victoria raging at the heavens and a few days later sent her a note saying, quote, Dr. Clark has mismanaged this child and poisoned her with calomel and you have starved her. I shall have nothing more to do with it. Take the child away and do as you like. And if she dies, you'll have it on your own conscience. End quote. By any standards, that's a horrible letter to write. But he was right about Dr. Clark. Naturally, Albert turned to longtime confidant Baron Stockmar. The Baron was a close family friend and advisor to Albert and his father. Stockmar was a man of excellent judgment and instrumental in the previous political scheming to get Albert to the head of the marriage queue in front of the Prince of Orange. He remained a behind-the-scenes advisor and political fixer. Albert wrote to him, saying, quote, Victoria is too hasty and too passionate for me to be able to speak of my difficulties. She will not hear me out, but flies into a rage and overwhelms me with reproaches of suspiciousness, want of trust, ambition, and envy, etc. End quote. Victoria probably didn't realise just how lonely and isolated Elmut really was. He was mocked or shunned just for being German. He lived in a society that was patriarchal, yet he was married to one of the most powerful women on earth and entirely dependent on her allowing him to do anything. He was also dependent on a miserly, xenophobic parliament for money. He had grown up passionately believing he was destined to serve the public, and instead he was in danger of being sidelined by a woman who lived to dance, party, enjoy music, and govern in an outdated style. Worse, she had once suggested he could hold the blotting paper as a treat. Victoria was uncomfortable with her role as a woman in charge of her husband, saying, quote, It is a reversal of the right order of things which distresses me much, and which no one but such a perfection, such an angel as he is, could bear and carry through. End quote. For all that they loved each other, and all they had in common, the image of domestic bliss they presented to the public did not show the realities. They had real difficulties navigating conflict and had some serious incompatibilities. Inevitably, one or both would have to change or the marriage would collapse. It wasn't just with Victoria that Albert was formal. Mary Buntell, one of Victoria's maids of honour, wrote, quote, His way of giving orders and reproofs was rather too much like the master of a house scolding servants, to be pleasant for those who were bound to listen in silence. End quote. The Queen's maids of honour were not employed domestic servants. They were aristocrats, chosen for her as close companions, so it was a shock to many of them to have Albert lecture them in a blunt manner as if they were employees. Still, Albert was trying to introduce a high level of formality to the monarchy. He needed it to have a mystique that contrasted sharply with the lounge lizard-style drunken parties of the Hanoverian monarchs or the laziness and isolation of the pre-revolutionary French monarchy. People were instructed to stand in the Queen's presence. Even prime ministers were not invited to sit, except, of course, for the beloved Disraeli and the rather overweight Lord Salisbury. 
It was also a product of the infamously strict German court etiquette that sometimes shocked British visitors. It had the curious effect of distancing the royal couple from the courtiers and politicians, but brought them closer to the actual servants. A chopping block was prepared for Baroness Lazen. Albert had written to Stockmar saying, quote, Lazen is a crazy, common, stupid intriguer, obsessed with the lust for power, now regards herself as a demigod, and anyone who refuses to acknowledge herself as such as a criminal. I, on the other hand, regard Victoria as a naturally fine character, but warped in many respects by wrong upbringing. There can be no improvement till Victoria sees Lazen as she is, but I pray that this comes. End quote. Albert acted quickly and ruthlessly again. Whether she was as bad as he made her out to be or not, she had attempted to drive a wedge between him and Victoria. Both personally and politically, this was intolerable. Albert fired Lazen in July 1842. He told her she was to return to Germany, making an excuse of ill health. He then lied to Victoria, telling her that Lazen wanted to resign and go back to Germany for health reasons. Lazen wisely stuck to the script when Victoria asked. The final parting happened quickly in September 1842. The rock of Victoria's childhood was gone, albeit with an extremely generous annual pension. Albert was now in ascendance. He had positioned himself to be Victoria's advisor, personal secretary and indispensable administrator. As a husband, he had behaved extremely badly, but as a piece of deft political manoeuvring, it was excellent. He had the keys to the official dispatch boxes of government papers, and he led in many meetings. The Prime Minister recognised his enormous talent and rise to power. The people who mattered now looked to Albert. The palace was being whipped into shape. Gardens were suddenly maintained. Albert and Baron Stockmar conducted a bruising review into royal administration. Julia Bird, in her excellent book Victoria, gives an excellent summary how insane palace organisation actually was. Quote, in the first year of Victoria's reign, a commissioner of the Department of Woods and Works inspected Buckingham Palace after complaints of bad smells and declared the lower floors to be squalid and uninhabitable. In the kitchens, he found the remains of garden stuff and everything else filthy. The roofs leaked and the drains had holes in them. A little was done. Three years later, Albert asked Stockmar to help him conduct another more comprehensive review. They found an archaic and extraordinarily inefficient structure. With the responsibility split between the Lord Chamberlain and the Lord Steward, with some input from the Master of Horse and the Office of Woods and Works. Lamps in Buckingham Palace were provided by the Lord Chamberlain's office, cleaned by the Lord Steward's office, and mostly lit by the Master of the Horse. The windows were always dirty, as the inside and outside were never cleaned at the same time, whilst the Lord Chamberlain's office was responsible for the inside of the palace, the Office of Woods and Works was in charge of the exterior. The Lord Steward's staff prepared and laid the fires whilst the Lord Chamberlain's lit them. Broken windows and cupboards were left for months before fixing them because the chief cook had to prepare and sign a requisition which was needed to be signed by the Master of the Household, authorised by the Lord Chamberlain's office and given to the Clerk of Works under the Office of Woods and Forests. End quote. Albert neatly solved all this nonsense by appointing a single representative of all the work areas of the palace able to sign off on anything. He also looked into the appalling levels of waste and fraud. Staff routinely ordered carriages for themselves in the Queen's name. They ordered fresh candles every day and took the old ones home, even if they were unlit. That was quite a perk, as candles were valuable, especially the fine beeswax ones used at the palace. Expensive free dinners for mates was another popular dodge. 
who knew how many silver forks or balls of fine yarn got lost. Albert went through like a new drill sergeant, making himself about as popular. He reasoned, since the staff were often working part-time and were taking stuff left and right, the obvious solution was not to engage in the fruitless task of policing them, but to cut staff wages to make up the difference whilst better staff were found. The message rang out loud and clear. Albert was cleaning palace, both literally and morally. Dress codes went hand in hand with moral codes, hung neatly in staff bedrooms. He was politically now king in all but name. Chancers and grifters were out. Party time was over. The royal finances were brought sharply under control. Royal deficits were turned into prudent savings. I know, he doesn't sound much fun, but be honest, he was basically a head of state and trying to raise the standards. He had been traumatised in his youth by a drunken father, family scandal, and was intensely disapproving of his brother's drinking and womanising. He knew that the British establishment was often lazy, drunk, xenophobic, and reliant on obsolete, ramshackle traditions. It was not a rational country, seemed actively anti-intellectual, and he was honestly a bit fed up with people making fun of him for being German. Racism is still racism, even when dressed up as a bit of banter in the press, after all. Nor, in his view, was the UK an artistically cultured nation. Buckingham Palace was all the country's political problems in a microcosm. Buckingham Palace would be deeply imprinted with his influence. During his time in Italy, Albert had fallen in love with the works of Raphael. He had created a collection of photos, reproductions and drawings of Raphael to create the famous Raphael Royal Collection. For the time, it was a groundbreaking catalogue of the artist's work. Albert also collected works by artists inspired by Raphael and gave Victoria Raphael-themed gifts. One particular artist, William Dicey, painted a wonderful picture called Beatrice. It is a stunning work. She is beautiful and otherworldly. Yet, ironically, the portrait was commissioned by Prime Minister Gladstone and the model was a prostitute that he claimed to have rescued from her profession. That so encapsulates so much that I love about the Victorian age, the sharp dichotomy between the stylized ideal and the more earthly reality. Domestic bliss and domestic storms aside, Albert was extremely busy. As the Royal Collection Trust notes, quote, the destruction of the old Houses of Parliament by fire in October 1834 offered the chance of a large-scale prestige project for native artists. A committee appointed to consider how this might be done recommended the use of frescoes, until then a rare medium in Britain, though recently revived on the continent, but one which this opportunity might allow to flourish. Prince Albert was appointed chairman of the Royal Commission on the Fine Arts with a specific brief to oversee the task of decorating the new Palace of Westminster. The Garden Pavilion, demolished in 1928, was a small cottage or pavilion in the garden of Buckingham Palace, initially intended as a place of refuge, which turned into a major project and was his personal laboratory in which he Charles Eastlake and Ludwig Gunner oversaw the experimental work of eight British artists. The prince saw it as a step towards the introduction of the Italian technique of fresco to Britain and commissioned artists to decorate rooms dedicated to the works of dated authors, such as Comu by John Milton. End quote. Albert was heavily involved in the art for the rebuilt Parliament buildings and was part of the enthusiastic attempt 
to introduce the fresco technique back to Britain. I say enthusiastic. According to one historian, Prince Albert, quote, applied Germanic thoroughness to a subject which he took more seriously than most Englishmen were prepared to do, end quote. For Albert, work was fun and fun was work. He was involved in finding fresco experts from Germany, but also pushing to have masters of the Italian fresco technique involved. Of course, frescoing in the United Kingdom has its own problems, especially due to the damp weather. The completion of the Royal Pavilion in the Paris grounds was eventually met with acclaim in the press, with one paper stating, quote, This experiment on the part of His Royal Highness is highly creditable to his taste and judgment. It will afford a valuable opportunity to some of our best artists to exhibit their power over a new style. The prince has done that which the nation could not do without injustice, commissioned the painters of established fame who are the most likely to be successful, end quote. Inevitably, with artists using a new technique, not all of them got it right. Some frescoes were painted in spurts when the plaster was dry, which was a disaster since fresco is a technique of painting onto wet plaster to create a bond as it dried. Some commentators felt that the English habit of adding colours by layer to increase brilliance was slow and therefore antithetical to the technique, whereas Germanic non-colourist styles were much better suited. Of course, the damp weather meant that previously dried plasters could become wet again and the damp could lift the paint. It seems around this time, William Dacre was brought in to shore up some mistakes. There was also the first real credible involvement of a man who deserves a lot more prominence, the German engraver Ludwig Grunner. He would become Prince Albert's official art advisor. Grunner was very much brought in to bring the pavilion project home. He did it highly successfully, and was rewarded with a commission from the Queen to publish a book about the pavilion. With a couple of minor exceptions, the English artists had been stunningly successful. They had produced world-class frescoes in a new damp climate. Naturally, the press was torn. Those who liked it called it a triumph of the Italian style of fresco. Those who disliked it called it a horror spawned by the Germanic styles. In August 1845, the Art Union at least recognised the crucial point. This was the start of a unique British style. Quote, Our description of this pavilion shows nothing in the same exquisite taste has ever been executed in this country. And as an example of what British artists are capable of when the opportunity is presented, we trust that it will realise the intentions of Her Majesty and His Royal Highness by promoting a feeling for high-class decoration and thus call forth the powers of our artists, of whom we are now more than ever justified in saying that to whatever department they devote themselves, they are at least equal to any others in Europe, end quote. You can almost hear the insecurity and longing. There's always been a strain of perception in Britain that its culture, literature and art is not taken seriously in Europe, that the Italians and French consider the British culturally inferior, that British art, food, crafts and much more are seen as rough or lacking compared to the grand masters of Europe, that somehow Britain has to justify itself before it is admitted to the cultured club, whilst others gain membership by default. Even Albert's efforts to kick-start British art, based on European traditions, started from the assumption of British inferiority. Many British people of the time counted this with a why bother, let's leave that fancy foreign stuff and stick to good old-fashioned paintings about landscapes and people attitude, whilst others were almost cringing 
in their need to ape European art customs. Yet the birth of the great art movements of 19th century Britain were starting, and British literature was already moving to an enormous dominance. From Dickens to Oscar Wilde, this was the century where the English language work took centre stage and refused to be upstaged by French or Italian works. Sadly, the magnificent pavilion was demolished in 1928, but we do have a book of prints showing the design. It was a fantastic riot of colour. Fresco painting was dear to Albert's heart, and he was excited that the Fine Arts Committee could run a public competition to find fresco painters for many of the many areas with a public exhibition of prize cartoons to showcase potential themes for final frescoes. The entries had to be exclusively fresco drawings based on British history or the work of Spencer, Shakespeare or Milton. There were a range of hefty prizes on offer. The art was important and fun, but Buckingham Palace needed to be a working palace. Much as Albert loved art, there was a recognition that the palace had to function. It wasn't big enough. It needed a larger dining room and a larger ballroom, plus a total overhaul of the kitchens, sewage and heating. The palace had to accommodate an army of servants, visitors, guests, horses and tradesmen. When Dicey began exhibiting, he was lambasted by critics who tore him and his work apart. It was too technically precise, too tied to historic painting styles, too religious, too moralising, and worst of all, too German. That would normally sink an artist, but you can tell where this is heading. Victorian Albert had already bought one of his paintings, and royal patronage is worth more than an ocean of critical ink. Victoria hung one of his paintings in her bedroom, saying, quote, A most delightful picture of the Madonna and Child by Dicey, quite like an old master, and in the style of Raphael, so chaste and exquisitely painted. End quote. She liked it enough to copy it herself in pastels, and Albert commissioned a companion piece to hang next to it. In fact, Madonna and Child would be exhibited alongside works by John Everett Maylay and William Holman Hunt at the 1855 Exposition Universelle in Paris. Albert was an early patron of a serious age of British art. The Dutch and other continental schools would soon be put on notice the British art was going to be producing truly great works. The 18th century in Britain had been dominated by portrait paintings and rather unimaginative landscapes, with the notable exceptions of Constable, Turner and Blake. The Victorian age would see the enormous talents of the Pre-Raphaelites and Ford Maddox Brown and the grand English Romantic movement. Then the genius of James Whistler who blended the English Romantic with the New Realism movement in his work Symphony in White No. 1, The White Girl, 1862. British art, both unique but also heavily steeped in the continental styles, was no longer going to be a provincial backwater. That's not to say that Albert was responsible, but he certainly helped create an atmosphere at court of ambitious art and patronage. Dicey was on the up. He had an impressive body of work, extensive training, and he travelled to Italy to learn the fresco techniques in 1847. Dicey got to paint a fresco for the staircase at Osborne House, depicting Neptune resigning to Britannia, the empire of the sea. It was a successful transplanting of the technique to Britain again. Like all sensible royal painters, he laid flattery on with a shovel. Neptune and company were depicted as old-fashioned hedonists, unworthy of ruling the sea, so they passed the crown to worthy, mighty Britannia and her mighty lion as the noble figures trade, industry and navigation 
looked on. What could be more Victorian? Of course, the god of the oceans would naturally recognise the preeminence of British trade. Albert and the committee commissioned Dicey to paint the frescoes in the Queen's robing rooms of the new Houses of Parliament. Dicey's choice was the tale of King Arthur. This was a surprising choice since the high Gothic and medievalist movement we associate the Victorians hadn't yet reached the mainstream. It was also a little scandalous, apparently, since Queen Guinevere was unfaithful, so he painted the frescoes as allegories. On top of this, Albert was instrumental in the magnificent redesign of the Grand Ballroom at Buckingham Palace. His vision of Italian master-level frescoes thriving in Britain was finally realised in the Grand Ballroom. He was also the prime mover in getting the front of the modern building added, and the front balcony, now world-famous, was his suggestion. Marble Arch was moved from the courtyard of Buckingham Palace to its current location. The remodelled Buckingham Palace was ready for royal use, and the famous balcony would be used to wave the troops goodbye as they went to the Crimea. The extra wing and the remodelling made it an enormous functional building. Still, some customs in the palace were beyond even Albert Almighty's ability to change. He was baffled why women retired to the drawing room after dinner, whilst the men stayed to smoke cigars. He hated the fact that it seemed rude to the ladies, that Victoria hated the custom, and that, worst of all, it kept him up late. Albert was warned that attempting to change this custom was an attempt to Germanize the royal court, why it was practically a German invasion. Albert grudgingly allowed a five-minute grace period. In this instance, he was ignored. How could a Victorian man be a Victorian man without brandy and cigars after dinner? Okay, thank you for listening to me chatter on about art and thank you for being so patient uh, waiting for the episode. The next episode should be the Halloween special at the end of October and I'm looking forward to seeing you when the ghosts and goblins come out. Take care. Okay, thanks for listening everyone. If you want to get in touch, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at ageofvictoriapodcast at gmail.com. Follow me on Twitter at Age of Victoria. Visit the website at www.ageofvictoriapodcast.com. The show also has a Facebook page and a group. Just search for Age of Victoria. Don't forget to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It takes less time than making a coffee. If you want to support the show on Patreon, there's a link in the show notes, or you can go to Patreon and search for Age of Victoria podcast or my name. Take care and bye for now.